Happy Monday morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Mean Event. I am your host, Kyle the Mean Event McGee. We've got a lot to talk about today. UFC 260 was this past Saturday in Miocic versus Nganu 2 for the heavyweight title. We had the return of the Sugar Show with Sean O'Malley and Tyrone Woodley versus Vicente Luque in the co-main event. Also next week, we've got to look forward to Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori on Saturday in the main event, all that and more. But first, I want to talk about some comebacks that were announced this week for the UFC. So let's get into it. So it was announced last week that Misha Tate, after nearly five years, is coming back to active competition. And she'll be fighting Marion Renew in what will be Marion Renew's retirement fight. So almost kind of a circle of life situation there, if you will. One person ends their retirement, another one will begin theirs, and those two will be meeting. Now, I want to say that that fight is supposed to be taking place in June or July of this year. Uh, It was announced just last week. So Misha Tate, in uh, the year that she retired, 2016, she became the UFC champion at the start of that year. And she became champion by submitting Holly Holm in the fifth round of their title fight. It was a really, really phenomenal fight. Ended up winning that. Then at UFC 200, she was defeated by now women's MMA GOAT Amanda Nunes inside of the first round after getting absolutely pummeled on the feet and then submitted with a rear naked choke on the ground. And then she would end that year in November on the UFC 205 card, the debut at Madison Square Garden, fighting Raquel Pennington in what was a pretty one-sided, not necessarily a beatdown, obviously, but it was a rather one-sided decision in the favor for Kel Pennington, and Misha made the decision right then and there that she just did not have that competitive fire in her anymore, and that it was time for her to call it a career. And now nearly five years later, she said that, you know, she's had two kids since then. She said, my heart of pull is full of passion, the fire has been lit, the sport has been calling for me, and it's time I answer. So she is on her way back. Um, she'll be fighting Marion Renew, who you know is 43 years old, on the verge of the final fight of her UFC contract, and uh, ha- has dropped some decisions as of late. Lost quite a few fights, and you know, unfortunately, that's just the way it goes. She was uh, nine and three and one on the verge of a title shot, and then is now nine and seven and one after losses to Katzenganu, Yana. Kunitskaya, Raquel Pennington, and then just two weekends ago, uh, Macy Chiasson. Um, so, you know, she said that she knew her last fight would be when she was 43 or 44 years old. Granted, I feel amazing. I feel the best I've ever felt, but there just comes a time when it's time to move on. And in my mind, I always knew I would finish out my contract and that was going to be it. I can't think of a better situation just because I like to say I grew up watching Misha. Misha, she was one of my first idols when I started fighting. I used to dream about fighting her. And now it's coming to pass and what happens to be my last hurrah. Now, you know, obviously, congratulations on a, a what was looking to be a phenomenal career. Unfortunately, it didn't end in the best way for her. Maybe she can go out on a good note. Now, with Misha, it sounds like Misha is planning to actually make this a full-blown return. She was even talking about wanting to get to a rematch with Amanda Nunes. Now, Dana White talked about how uh, Misha had some sort of nose surgery done after the Holly Holm fight, and he warned her. I want to say he made it sound like it was a, um, a cosmetic nose surgery, and he said he warned her that 
She needs to save that until after she retires. You know, she's going to get hit there, and it's not going to be fun. And he said, if you watch that fight with Nunes, Nunes caught her on the nose, and she very clearly did not like it. He told her it'd be a bad idea. He thinks that played a big mental factor in her wanting to retire. Was, you know, it, it affected her wanting to get hit or not. Um, I could see that. I also do think that with that fight, I mean, Amanda Nunes hitting you in the face, regardless of how your nose feels beforehand, it's going to feel pretty crappy afterwards. I am very excited and very happy to see Misha Tate back. I think she had a lot left to offer the sport when she left. I think she's, you know, grown a lot in her personal life since then, and I think it's given her that fire to return again. Uh, hopefully she's able to come back and look better than ever, and then we can see her work her way up. I like the fight they gave her, you know. This is a woman who's been out for nearly five years and, and was coming off of two straight losses when she did retire. This isn't someone you throw in to immediate title fight or to immediate title eliminator fight. Throw her in there with someone like Marion Renew, you know, kind of on the downswing of their career, and let her work her way back into it, you know, see how she does with that, and go with her from there. There's obviously, you know, that division right now, the women's bantamweight division is is kind of wide open, you know, looking at the top 15. Uh, Marion Renew is at number 12, so it would earn her a spot in the top 15. And you've got, you know, she could rematch girls like Sarah McMahon after this fight if she wins. You know, there, there's a lot that she'd be available to do with this division, especially with the state of flux we're kind of in with the champion Amanda Nunes. Whether or not she's going to be fighting Juliana Pena, whether or not she's going to wait until Pena or somebody else really comes forward as a true contender. So that division definitely does uh, have some opening spots for Misha Tate, and it'll be very interesting to see where, after all this time off, she lays in things. So I'm excited for that, and I can't wait to see what happens with her return. The other return, although not as big of a return as far as how long the person's been out, but... Uh, Hamzat Chimaev announced he's back. He said, surprise, surprise, I'm coming back to smash everybody. Now, his manager, Ali Abdelaziz, said that uh, the two names they really want is either Kevin Holland or Neil Magny, and I love either one of those fights. Now, Neil Magny, obviously a top bona fide contender at 170 pounds. He's, he's kind of in that, uh, and I don't say this as an insult, uh, but he is kind of in that gatekeeper position. He's he's the true factor in whether or not you're going to be able to break into the the elite of the elite of that division. You know, he's number nine right now. He's kind of the deciding factor for whether or not you can get to a top five fight. I believe we saw that with the Michael Chiesa fight. You know, with Michael Chiesa beating him, Chiesa has earned his way to the top five of the division. Neil Magny is a tough night out for anybody, and I, I personally, before the Leon Edwards fight was announced for Hamzat, I wanted that fight anyway, and I'm hoping we get it. Now with Kevin Holland, Holland is coming off that loss to Derek Brunson and is actually talking about moving down to 170. Should he decide to stay at 185 pounds, that does keep my interest even more towards the Neil Magny side of things. I, I like Hamzat at 170 a little bit more. Than 185 pounds, not saying he couldn't compete at both, but I do like him at 170. And I, I like the idea of him and Neil Magny. You know, stylistically, Hamzat is the type of fighter who can defeat Neil Magny. Neil Magny's biggest weakness throughout his career has been strong wrestlers and good grapplers. And, you know, that is that is Hamzat's strength. Obviously, he's got knockout power on the feet. He's a very well, well-versed uh, mixed martial artist. He, he can beat you on the feet and he can beat you on the ground. But Neil Magny 
is a bona fide <clears throat> top 10 fighter in the welterweight division and is a true test for Hamza Chimaev. I love the sound of that fight and I love the idea of that in July. I would love to see if we could get that on the uh, McGregor Poirier card, which it sounds like we'll be getting on July 10th, which I'll be talking about that more here in a little bit. But yeah, I, I love the idea of he and Neil Magny stylistically. It's a tough fight for Neil, but it's also a great way to see whether or not Hamzad is truly ready to be an elite fighter. If apologize for that, something just dropped in my office. Um, if he is able to defeat Neil Magny, I do believe he's ready for the top five of the division, and I'd be very interested to see where they go with him. But Hamzat and Misha Tate are both back. What a way to start off the week. Now, UFC 260 was this past Saturday, as I mentioned before, and it was a fantastic night of fights, if you ask me. I thoroughly enjoyed it from top to bottom. So, the uh, unfortunately, we lost quite a few fights from this card. Uh, Hannah Goldie versus Jessica Penne. We lost it the week of the fight due to COVID. Uh, Hannah Goldie tested positive for COVID. So the bout has been postponed. It has not been officially announced, but is it expected that those two will be fighting off in three weeks at Whitaker versus Gastelum? Uh, Randa Marcos was expected to take be fighting at this event, but tested positive on March 18th. So they're expected to be fighting at UFC Fight Night 188 in five weeks. Um, so, you know, and then obviously the big blow to the fight card was that we had the co-main event, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega getting pulled from the fight card last week, which I talked about due to Ortega testing positive. We will be seeing that bout soon enough. Nothing has officially been announced. But needless to say, this, this fight card had gotten kind of wiped out. There was only 10 fights left, so the early prelims... We only had one fight on the early prelims, and it was... Abu Izaitar versus Marc-Andre Berriou, and dear lord did this fight go on a lot longer than it needed to. For anybody that watched it, um, in the third round, Berriou just absolutely was destroying Abu, and uh, it they even talked about in the fight, like, th this could be stopped at any moment. He was being beaten into a bloody pulp on the ground. Other than moving around, he wasn't intelligently defending himself, he was... He was moving on the ground, but he wasn't doing anything to truly stop the punches from raining down. Finally, the referee stopped it with four seconds left in the third round. An absolute dominant performance from Marc-Andre Berriut. And a pretty brutal way to start off the card. Um, you know, he's finally back in the winning column. He started off his UFC career 0-3 with three decision losses. And then... Um, he actually tested positive for Osterine in his last fight, which was originally a TKO victory for him. So hopefully he tests clean after this one and can get himself back to um, maybe getting uh, his UFC career going again. We will see what happens, but it was a phenomenal way to start the card for him. And then we went straight into the main prelims. Uh, we had some good fights. We had the featherweight fight between Omar Morales and Shane Young. Omar Morales, uh, to me, looked... Much larger than Shane Young, looked much more physically imposing. This was a pretty one-sided fight. Shane Young was pretty desperate to try and get this fight to the ground. There was a lot of clinch work, a lot of takedown attempts, and Morales just kind of stopped all that and, and picked him apart standing up. You could tell when the fight was over. Shane Young knew who had won the fight. Um, great win for Morales. Uh, 
You know, he's a featherweight and a lightweight formerly, 11-1 in his career, only one loss, and it's by decision in his last fight to Giga Chikadze, and that was in his featherweight debut. So, you know, after a rough start to his featherweight uh, debut, he uh, bounced back in a big way against Shane Young. This is a uh, Dana White Contender Series veteran, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with him at featherweight. He definitely looks physically imposing compared to a featherweight like Shane Young, so that will be interesting to see how that works out for him. Next, we had uh, Mikhail Olajacek. I believe that's how it's pronounced. I, there was quite a few different pronunciations on the card. Uh, versus Modestus Bukakis. The, uh, it was a pretty back-and-forth fight. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I personally had Bukakis winning it when I watched it the first time. Um, Olajacek was the one that they scored the fight for. You know, I mean, a, a good win for him. It was a, it was a good fight. Olya Kacek was the one that was moving forward, and I believe that was what they scored it for for him. Um, you know, he's, he's coming off uh, two straight submission losses before this, uh, Kimura to Jimmy Crute, and then a uh, Von Flew, a.k.a. the St. Von Pru choke, um, to OSP. Uh, you know, other than that, he's had a, a relatively mixed career. He started off his career in the UFC with a no contest after he tested positive. Then he had a TKO win over Jan Vellante in the first round, a knockout win in his next fight, and then this win. Uh, like I said, I personally had Bukaskis winning this fight, but it was a very close fight. It'll be interesting to see what they do with either one of them next. Um, Oleg Chajek probably going to earn his way into a top 15 fight, if I had to guess. Bukaskis, I don't believe, loses any stock from this fight because I thought it was, in my mind, it was pretty clear that he had won this fight. But you can never leave it in the hands of the judges. So next up was Abu Bakr Nurmagomedov versus Jared Gooden. Now, Jared Gooden had talked a lot heading into this fight about Abu Bakr, and he had talked specifically about the style of the Dagestan fighters. Um, he used the likage... Um, uh, he basically compared the grappling style and, and said, you know, I, I'm not afraid of this fight because I know I'm not going to take any damage. Watching a Nurmagomedov fight is the same as watching a... Uh, I guess you would say he called it a um, erotic film with two men, is what he compared it to. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just... It was kind of weird to even hear a fighter, a mixed martial artist call a grappling fight that, but what made this all the more interesting was that he lost this fight 30-27, and for the first two rounds, he got picked apart standing up by Abu Bakr and Magomedov. This was a lopsided fight in the truest form. Abu Bakr was hitting harder, he was hitting more often, he was getting out of the way of strikes. Jared Gooden just looked overwhelmed straight from the beginning. And couldn't really do much standing, couldn't get much off. And Abu Bakr was picking him apart, almost like he was trying to send a message to him. And the second round was even more so dominant than the first. And then he heads to his corner after the fight, and uh, after the second round, and Javier Mendez said, I want a better round next round. So then Abu Bakr finally shot for a takedown, put him on his back, and just smothered him for the remainder of the fight. 30-27 and a great win from Abu Bakr, who actually lost his UFC debut by triangle choke. Now, fantastic win in this one. He obviously is not quite there at the top 15 of the division yet, but he is going to work his way up. And this is another example of me showing that Khabib is working his way into being a coach of the year. I do not believe a fighter he has had has lost so far this year. 
And he's apparently even planning on coaching Luke Rockhold and Luke's return later this year. So I'll be interested to see who they book him against to see if maybe Khabib can get that feather in his cap as well. But all in all, a fantastic all-around performance by Abu Bakr Nurmagomedov. The Dagestan fighters are really starting to take over in the UFC, even now that Khabib is gone. So it'll, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And what's interesting is, you know, Khabib started off his career, you know, he had he did have a knockout win over Thiago Tavares, but early on he was primarily a grappler and uh, started developing his stand-up later in his career. Now, these guys are coming in with pretty well-polished stand-up games. I mean, Abu Bakr looked pretty good. Islam Makachev is a fantastic all-around fighter. So I'll be very interested to see how well these Dagestan fighters do moving forward. Great performance by Abu Bakr, though. And then we had Alonzo Minifield versus Fabio Charant. Fabio Charant came in half a pound heavyweight in at 206 and a half. This fight only lasted 1 minute and 11 seconds. Alonzo Minifield went in for a takedown. Fabio Charant went for a guillotine, ended up in side control on the bottom, and ended up getting tapped to a fond flu choke. So it's crazy to me that at this stage of the game, in 2021, with all the knowledge there is out there in jiu-jitsu and in the MBMA world and how much we've seen OSP get the Von Flute choke, that guys continue to hold on to guillotines when they are on side control on the bottom. It is a thing we see constantly, and it doesn't end well, but guys will continue to do it. Fabio Chiron held on to this guillotine and would not let it go. He was very clearly getting caught in this Von Flute choke as well. Could have even gone to an arm triangle. If he wanted, I don't understand how guys get to this level. They are at the UFC level and are continuing to go for guillotines from side control on the bottom. You, we've seen what happens from day one. You cannot do that. You will never submit a guy. All you do is you put yourself at risk for getting submitted. And yet we will continue to see it on a almost, you know, monthly basis. It's almost once a month. I feel like I see a guy going for a guillotine and continuing to hold it from side control for the bottom. They'll eventually let it go most times, but... The minute you find yourself inside control at the bottom, you need to be letting go of that guillotine because you're not going to get it. You need to start working on getting your way up off of your back instead of putting yourself in a very, very vulnerable spot to get submitted. Now, congratulations to Alonzo Minifield. This is a guy who actually has fought and lost to OSP, although I do not believe it was a Von Flu choke that he lost to him by, but this is a man who has fought OSP, so seeing him get a Von Flu choke, pretty funny. Now, moving into the main card after this, we had Jamie Malarkey versus Kama Worthy. Now, this fight I thought was very good on paper, and, you know, Kama Worthy coming off of two finishes in his career, in his UFC career, I should say, actually coming off of a win, if I'm correct, was coming off of the win over violent Bob Ross, Luis Pena. And, uh, yeah, so he had... So, sorry, he actually did lose to Otman Azaitar in his last fight. Um, but before that, a guillotine over Luis Pena and then TKO over Devontae Smith. He had lost his uh, last fight. And Jamie Malarkey came into this fight and had actually lost his first two UFC fights, both by decision. Malarkey came out in this fight and just drilled him right out of the gate and ended up putting Kama Worthy to sleep within 46 seconds with punches. Very fast fight. Kama Worthy had no idea what happened. He went up to Malarkey's coaches when the decision was about to be announced and asked them what happened. It was a 
he got put to sleep. And what was crazy was it was a pretty delayed reaction. He got caught, I believe it was with the right hand. And he kind of stepped backwards and looked like he was about to reset and then just collapsed to the mat. It was one of those where you knew right then and there he was done. He got hit with a few follow-up shots on the ground, but it was over. Impressive win for Malarkey. Gets himself into the win column. I'm not sure what will happen with Combo Worthy next. He's now 2-2 two and two in his UFC career. Um, you know, he won both of his fights with finishes. He's lost both of his fights with finishes. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they give him another shot, but he'll definitely be very likely fighting for his job in his next fight. Malarkey arguably could have saved his UFC career on Saturday. So fantastic victory for him and look forward to seeing him coming back. Next up was... Uh, Surging contender Miranda Maverick versus Jillian Robertson. Jillian, number 15 in the world, uh, heading into this fight. Miranda Maverick, so far undefeated in her UFC career uh, with one win and hadn't lost since February 2019. She's only got two losses in her career. She's relatively young, only 23 years old. Um, so she comes into this fight, and we knew it was going to be a tough test for her. Um, ended up being a pretty grappling-heavy fight. I, I thought she lost the second round um, when uh, Jillian Robertson kind of took control with the grappling, and then she actually came back in the third round, Maverick did, and controlled that round on the mat. It was, it was a pretty good uh, close fight. It was very technical, but Maverick, I thought, had done enough to win the first round. Robertson did enough to win the second round, and then Maverick did more than enough to win the third round. Pretty clear-cut winner for Miranda Maverick. Miranda Maverick, you know, just more than happy to continue showing her improving skills and is looking to move forward. Someone suggested online a fight with Macy Barber. Now, I don't know that they will necessarily put that fight together with Macy Barber coming off of two straight losses. Um, but, you know, looking at that division, the women's flyweight division, uh, Macy Barber is, you know, the, the next step up technically as far as the rankings go. Uh, if she's not busy, I could see them doing an Antonina Shevchenko as well. Um, with Macy Barber coming off of two straight losses, I could see them maybe trying to protect her a little bit more than that. So it, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that we see that fight next. But yeah, I, I think that is a fight down the line um, that we could be seeing. You know, These two are both very young. Macy Barber, although coming off of two straight losses, could very easily work her way back up. Um she actually started looking very good near in the third round of her last fight. Miranda Maverick, you know, young surging contender and is only improving. So I think it is a matter of time before we see that fight. I just do not believe we see it next. Then we had the return of the Sugar Show. Sean O'Malley taking on Thomas Almeida. Now, obviously, one thing with Sean O'Malley coming into this fight, telling people that mentally he's undefeated, that his fight with... Marlon Chito Vera wasn't a real loss. It was a freak accident. In the Sugar Commission, he's still undefeated. Um, <clears throat> I do hope that outside of his character and his personality, he does understand that that was a loss. Um, but regardless, you know, I guess it's not bad to have that mentality. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I, I, I do believe that he did lose that fight. and it, the, uh, the issue with his leg in that fight was due to a calf kick. From Vera, we have seen this before. Uh, it happened to Michael Chandler in the UFC in the, uh, in Bellator. Sorry, that is actually how he lost his title uh, when they went to Madison Square Garden. So 
you know, obviously, <clears throat> I thought this was a pretty winnable fight. I believe I said that last week. I was still absolutely impressed by Sean O'Malley in this fight. However, there was a glaring problem to me, and that was in the first round. I, I understand Sean O'Malley is a fighter who he said he, he doesn't just want to go out there and fight. He wants to create moments for people to remember. And I think one thing with Sean O'Malley is he really thinks, he really likes the idea of doing the walk-off. It creates a really big moment for him. Um, the unfortunate thing in the first round, he landed a beautiful head kick that hit all made a flush in the face. I, I Honestly, I don't know how he took it. It was a hard head kick and then got caught with a straight right cross down the middle right afterwards. Put him down and Sean O'Malley walked off. The problem was, Almeida went to his butt and immediately when he landed on the ground, put his arms up over his head to follow up, to protect from the follow-up. He was very clearly still with it. And uh, O'Malley kind of threw his hands up, almost as if to, why isn't the fight stopped? But then they kept going. And, uh, you know, for for O'Malley, I was immediately thinking, man, he really better hope he doesn't get caught by something, because he's going to regret this if he ends up losing this fight somehow. Now, this fight was not close from the onset. I, I feel like stylistically... This was a terrible matchup for Almeida, and it was tailor-made for Sean O'Malley. Now, I'm not trying to take anything from Sean O'Malley with that. Sean O'Malley looked phenomenal again in this fight. Um, What I was impressed with was Sean O'Malley in this fight versus what I was not impressed with. I was impressed with how he looked, how crisp his striking was, his footwork, his defense, and his ability to avoid the strikes. Everything about him and his diverse striking attack is absolutely impressive. What I was not impressed with was the level of competition. Um, you know, Thomas Almeida had lost four of his last five. I believe his one win, the guy is no longer in the UFC, and two of those losses were by knockout. Um, I, I kind of expected going into this, this was going to be a pretty easy fight for Sean O'Malley. And the thing is, all props to Sean O'Malley. Sean O'Malley made it look incredibly easy. You know, he, he just picked Almeida apart. In the third round, he started engaging quite a bit more, and Almeida did get a few more opportunities to land, but they kind of just bounced right off of O'Malley when he did. Didn't seem to phase O'Malley all that much. And so, ends up uh, dropping him with a short little uh, look. I believe it was like a right hook. Just ended up, Almeida charged in and just went right into it. And it was very clear that O'Malley really didn't want to land the follow-up strike, um, but the referee wasn't calling it, threw it, and boom, put him completely out with a hard right hand while he was flat on his back. Sean O'Malley immediately with the uh, the fadeaway three for the celebration, former basketball player. A, a great win for him. He made it pretty clear to Joe Rogan he didn't want to fall, throw that follow-up strike. Absolutely phenomenal performance from Sean O'Malley. Nothing short of what I expected from him. Um, I'm very excited to see what comes up next for him. You know, he, he rebounded in a great way from that. Marlon Vera performance and has has definitely got the makings to be a star if he can continue fighting in the correct way you know maybe the Marlon Vera fight doesn't go that way nine times out of ten there's no way to speak for it I do believe that those two will get matched up again down the line but here's what I found interesting obviously I think I've made it pretty clear I want to see Marlon or sorry uh, I want to see O'Malley take a step up in competition after this one Chael Sonnen came out and said he received a text message from Dominic Cruz after that fight. And that Dominic Cruz wants Sean O'Malley. I cannot even begin to tell you how much, from a striking stylistic matchup, I salivate at the idea of that matchup. The movement 
and awkward and uh, incredibly awkward movement and fighting style of Dominic Cruz versus the you know honestly the creativity and the movement from Sean O'Malley just sounds like a fantastic fight. Now that is a big step up. But the thing is Sean O'Malley is a guy that people want to watch. You know whether they love him or they hate him, they want to watch him. So that's the kind of fight that he could get booked for him. And that is a on paper would be a phenomenal fight no matter who wins. That would be an extremely technical fight and it would just be absolutely amazing to watch. I I would love the idea of that fight. Does it get booked? I'm not 100% sure, but if Cruz is asking for it, I could see Cruz getting it. Looking at the rankings, a fight that would make sense to me and a fight that makes sense on paper and that one of these people has been calling for for a while is Sean O'Malley versus Marab Davalashvili. Marab is a very strong grappler. He's got some knockouts, but he's a very strong grappler and number 12 in the division. He's not a drastic step up in competition for Sean O'Malley, but it is a step up, and it is a noticeable step up into the top 15 of the division. I believe that is an interesting fight going forward. I think he poses some problems for Sean O'Malley, especially if he can get him to the ground. You know, we'd have to see Sean O'Malley off of his back. We haven't had to see too much of that, and I'd be interested to see what actually happens. He claims he's at a point where he's not afraid to end up on his back anymore because he knows he can submit guys. Can he? Maybe. Uh, I think that'd be a good fight to test it. I think your other option is, yeah, go ahead and do that rematch with Marlon Chito Ferra and see how it goes this time. I don't know if the UFC necessarily wants to do that right away, so I don't know if we'll see that one, but I would not be surprised with any of those three matchups. I think those three matchups make the most sense um, for Sean O'Malley, but stylistically... Man, I just I love the idea of Dominic Cruz versus Sean O'Malley. Rankings-wise, maybe it doesn't make as much sense, but stylistically, that is such an exciting matchup. All right, now in the co-main event, Tyron Woodley versus Vicente Luque. Now, the narrative into this fight, Tyron Woodley, three straight losses, and none of those three losses has it looked like he was there to fight. He's looked gun-shy. He's been afraid to pull the trigger. He just never looks like he's really been there since the Kamara Usman fight. And, you know, it's crazy to think that just over two years ago now, about, what, 25 months ago, Tyron Woodley was the welterweight champion of the world, was a heavy favorite over Kamara Usman, and was coming off of a dominant demolition of Darren Till. Since then, in the two years since then, five rounds to nothing to Kamara Usman, five rounds to nothing to Gilbert Burns and was four rounds nothing to Colby Covington before his rib got injured and he ended up losing that fight due to a TKO. Comes into this fight with Vicente Luque and he said, you know, I, I'm no longer in the driver's seat. I realized I need to have coaches actually running my camps for me. It's not working and I know I need to be aggressive. Now we heard this from him in his last two fights, so it was hard to truly believe it. This fight starts and Tyron Woodley immediately takes the center of the octagon and wings that overhand right and engages in the clinch. Right out of the gate, this was obvious. This is not the Tyron Woodley from the last two fights. Um, he was very aggressive in the early going. You know, was looking for the strikes. Ended up catching Luke with an overhand right behind the ear. And Luke kind of dropped down and looked like he might have gotten rocked for a minute. And Woodley just charged on him. Uh, came in swinging overhand rights and hooks and uppercuts. The problem was Woodley got overly excited, which meant him get overly aggressive, which made him get reckless. He threw a huge uppercut but with his right hand, but kept his left hand low, and 
Luke came over the top with a right, caught him kind of square on the jaw and the neck, and sent Woodley backwards. Almost dropped him. Charged in, just started obliterating him with shots. Now, Woodley kept swinging, but his legs were not there. His legs were stiff, and they kept stumbling all over the place. Um, he ended up getting away at one point and literally just stumbled all the way across the octagon up against the cage and kept swinging. Luke came forward and just started beating him up with strikes. Woodley ended up kind of dropping down and then started going for a takedown. And then Luke started going for a Darce choke, and Woodley offered no resistance. There was no attempt to scramble. There was no fighting of the hands. He was just so rocked. I don't think he could really do anything. And Luke ends up locking it in. Woodley tries to, you know, start moving, but ends up trapping himself up against the cage and ends up submitting to what was being classified as a Bravo choke. It was a Darce choke, Bravo choke, whatever you want to call it. Luke catches him uh, in the first round in what was the fight of the night, and I absolutely agreed it was my favorite fight of the night, although it was heartbreaking to see Woodley go out like that. Uh, Luke with the biggest win of his career over Tyron Woodley. You know, while we've seen Woodley lose his past few fights, that was nothing short of spectacular. That was a first-round finish for Vicente Luque against the former welterweight champion of the world and a guy who may have unfortunately overstayed his welcome in the sport but is one of the best welterweights of all time. Um, you know, his run when he became champ, you know, the first-round knockout over Robbie Lawler, you had... You know, the the draw with Stephen Thompson, and then you had his decision went over Stephen Thompson, and then the decision went on Damian Maya, and then the submission over Darren Till. He had a great run in the sport, some big wins. Uh, unfortunately, his time has definitely passed him up. 39 years old, four straight losses. And I believe, from what I heard from Dana White, this was the last fight on his UFC contract, so I don't expect that we see him um, back in the UFC. I don't see them picking up a 39-year-old with four straight losses. Uh, just because he's a former champion of the world. I don't know if Tyron retires from here. I, I would kind of like to see him retire off of this. Not that he doesn't still have the capabilities to compete in this sport, but just because I, I'd hate to see him to continue to damage his le- reputation and his legacy. I think Tyron has left his mark on the sport. I think he went out on his shield, which, you know, honestly, I think had he retired off of one of his last three losses, I don't think he'd be able to be happy with himself because he didn't truly put an effort in into those fights. He put the effort in in this one and it just was not enough. Woodley looked like the Woodley of old. Don't make any mistake. Woodley looked like himself in this fight. Unfortunately, he got reckless and he got caught. I really wonder what would have happened had Woodley not gotten reckless in this fight. I think Luke might have caught him eventually anyway. But man, it was just unfortunate to see that he uh, he got caught due to him getting so overly excited and so overly aggressive when we haven't seen that in recent fights. Now, for Luque, as I said, easily the biggest one of his career. This guy is on a tear of the division since his loss to Stephen Thompson. I mean, you know, when he lost to Stephen Thompson, it was rather one-sided, um, and that was at uh, UFC 244 in Madison Square Garden. But since then, He's had three straight wins. He had a doctor stoppage win over Nico Price at UFC 249. He knocked out Randy Brown and now has submitted Tyron Woodley. And, you know, before that, he had the decision win over Mike Perry where it absolutely destroyed Mike Perry's nose. And if you look at his career, um, he, he lost his first fight in the UFC on the Ultimate Fighter finale, American Top Team versus Black Zillions. But since then, he has two losses, and it's Stephen Thompson and Leon Edwards. That's nothing to be ashamed of. And he's got some phenomenal finishes and some phenomenal wins. Um, two, three, four, 
four fight of the nights in his UFC career, and he's got, let's see, one, two, three, yeah, three, three uh, performance of the nights, yeah, three performance of the nights and four fight of the nights, seven fight of the night awards already, or seven of the night awards already, I should say, sorry, and, and this guy is just absolutely exciting to watch every time, and he goes into the post-fight interview, and, uh, you know, I was wondering who he was going to call out because, you know, when you look at the rankings, he, he beat the number seven welterweight in the world in Tyron Woodley. He's number 10. So, obviously, that puts him past Neil Magny and Damian Maia now. The only people above him would be Michael Chiesa, Stephen Thompson, Jorge Masvidal, Leon Edwards, Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington, and then, obviously, the champ, Kamara Usman. When you look at that, uh, Masvidal matched up with Usman, Covington doesn't seem too interested in taking a fight with anybody right now. Uh, Stephen Thompson is lobbying for a fight with Leon Edwards or Gilbert Burns or Colby Covington. He's just lobbying for a fight with anybody. He was lobbying for a title fight. Kiesa and Burns has apparently been talked about. Uh, I, with how much he's been talking, Bahal Muhammad might be getting the fight with Leon Edwards back. Uh, he has, you know, just absolutely been going off on Leon Edwards to the media, and it. Just, you know, I, I, honestly, if if I'm Leon Edwards, I'm taking that fight just to prove a point. So I, I don't know what Vicente Luque does next, and he goes into the booth, and he calls out Nate Diaz. Now, uh, moving forward in the rankings-wise, maybe that doesn't make the most sense, but <clears throat> if you want to talk about getting a payday and making yourself a name in the sport, Nate Diaz is the guy to call out. And the thing with Vicente Luque, I would, a few fights ago, I'd have been like, man, this that's a waste of a call-out. But Vicente Luque is now got a win over a former champion and is the type of fighter that Nate Diaz wants to fight. Nate Diaz wants to go in there with a guy who is going to engage in a fist fight. And that is what you're going to get with Vicente Luque. He is going to engage in a fist fight. Vicente Luque, I do believe, would probably beat Nate Diaz, but I believe that is a phenomenal fight. I don't know if the UFC could get it booked, but I absolutely love the idea of it. If they cannot get it booked, I would love to see him versus Kiesa if they don't book Gilbert Burns versus Kiesa. But that's the thing. With the top of the division right now, it's, things are in such a state of flux because nobody in the top five is getting fights announced. So you don't really know what's available for Luque. So that's one reason why I really like the call out of Diaz. It'll be interesting to see what happens for him. If he can get that fight, I hope Luque can make the most of it and he would make himself a bona fide star of the sport if he can go in there and defeat Nate Diaz. So now we move into the main event of the evening. The main event, Francis Ngannou versus Stipe Miocic. Uh, I, I went into this fight thinking the smaller cage will definitely favor uh, Francis Ngannou. I wasn't sure if Francis would actually be able to catch him or not. I wasn't sure what Stipe's strategy was going to be. I kind of expected this might be a very similar outcome to the first fight. You know, we'd only seen, really since the Stipe fight, the only fight that has gone past the first round for Francis was the Derek Lewis fight in which nothing really happened from either guy. So we hadn't really seen how much improvements Francis has been able to make. He's just been putting guys to sleep. Stipe, on the other hand, looked better than ever in the second, in the third fight with uh, Daniel Cormier. So I was kind of curious as to what was going to happen. Pretty early on, I had my answer when Stipe went for the takedown and Francis sprawled it like no other and actually ended up reversing it and just starts wailing punches. 
Uh, right out of the gate, I, I realized Stipe is in trouble. Uh, if he can't get this guy on the ground, he's in big trouble in this fight. The even scarier part for Stipe was how calm and patient Francis Ngannou was. This guy wasn't swinging looping punches. He was throwing straights. He was throwing regular hooks. But he was taking his time. He wasn't overexerting himself. And it was very clear that everything that was landing was hurting Stipe in some sort of way. He took some of those shots on the chin. He took the right cross straight on the chin. He took a head kick, and it just barely caught him in the face, but it caught him, and he took it. He took some shots very early on. Uh, first round was a pretty clear 10-9 for Francis, and it was a very worrying round for Stipe. Come out in the second round, Francis again, very calm, ends up throwing a jab and puts Stipe on his butt. Stipe comes up, and Francis just starts wailing on him with punches, charges forward with a hook, and Stipe actually catches him with a right hand and makes Francis back up. And landing that right hand might have been the worst thing that ever could have happened to Stipe. Because the way that Francis stepped back afterwards, I think Stipe thought he hurt him. And so he charged forward on Francis. And Francis just threw a short left hook, put him to sleep. He fell back so awkwardly on that leg. And then Francis landed a huge hammer fist. And it was all over. Francis Ngannou is the new undisputed UFC heavyweight champion of the world. Francis Ngannou is, in my opinion, easily the scariest human being to ever step foot in the octagon. The Francis we saw on Saturday, I don't know that anybody beats him. He was calm, but he wasn't gun-shy like he was against Derek Lewis. And he's still powerful. And he didn't even put Stipe out with his dominant hand. He put him out with the left hand. This guy is just improving every single fight. You know, I... The Rosenstreich fight, he almost looked like he had regressed because he was just kind of wailing his arms, but I truly think he went out there to prove a point and just to put Rosenstreich out as quick as possible because Rosenstreich had been calling him out for so long and he didn't feel like Gaiorginho was at his level, and I felt like he just wanted to prove it and kind of run through him like he was no one. This fight, he was calm, he was technical, he was relaxed, and he was absolutely terrifying to watch. Great post-fight speech, you know, and if you look at his story, it's just absolutely incredible. And, and even crazier to think, in 25 years of the UFC, we had never had an African-born champion in the UFC. And now fast forward since February 2019, we now have three with Kamaru Usman, Israel Adesanya, and now Francis Ngannou. And Francis Ngannou has an absolutely incredible story. Now, where this gets interesting is we were being told for months that the winner of this fight was fighting John Jones next. John Jones will be fighting the winner of Francis and Stipe. Well, now Dana White comes out at the press conference and says, if I'm John Jones and I see that fight, I'm coming back down to 185. I'm going to 185. I'm not even going back to 205. I'm skipping that, going right to 185. Uh, and John Jones has, over for over a year now, been asking for more money. Uh, now he's still asking and says, I want a better payday. And Dana White is using that and saying he's scared of Francis. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that notion. Uh, just because John Jones has been asking for this for over a year now. I don't think it's unfair for John Jones to ask to be paid a little bit more than what he's been getting paid to move up to heavyweight. Now he said that he'll be contacting the UFC this week and he'll see if they are able to arrange on a number. But Dana White at the press conference said... He thinks Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou is the fight to make next. I know that is arguably the most boring heavyweight fight of all time, maybe one of the most boring fights of all time, period. I don't know that it would necessarily go that way a second time around. And Lewis, if any heavyweight that's actually an active heavyweight, 
you know, taking John Jones out of the argument is definitely the one that deserves a title shot if you don't want to give Francis or Stipe an immediate rematch with Francis, which with how lopsided that performance was, I don't know that you do. Um, you know, here's the mistake that John Jones made. Um, he said that Derek Lewis is the fight to make, and John Jones said, why rush a great thing, give Derek the fight. Here's, here's where that's a mistake on John Jones' part. If you say that, they will do it. Um, so I, I would not be surprised if that is the fight that gets booked next. Maybe they try and book John Jones versus Stipe. I, I don't know what's next for Stipe. Um, I, I've been seeing a lot of people calling for him to retire. I don't think that that's truly necessary for him to retire at this point. Like I said, the Cormier fight, he looked better than ever. I think Francis is just a nightmare matchup for anybody right now. If Stipe does decide to retire, then, you know, it was an absolutely incredible career. He has nothing to be ashamed of. He's the still the heavyweight GOAT. Now, Francis obviously has the ability to surpass him, but heading into this fight, my thought process was he's already the greatest heavyweight of all time. If he beats Francis, that just solidifies it. Now, people have been saying that if John Jones comes in and wins the heavyweight title, he's the undisputed GOAT, just in general. So my thought on that was... Well, if Stipe beats Francis, he solidifies himself as the heavyweight GOAT even further. And then if he beats Jones, wouldn't that make him the GOAT just in general? Not just just the pound-for-pound pound GOAT? So I, I think that we go from that narrative to he needs to retire is a little bit drastic. Now, I would not be surprised if he does. He has nothing to hang his head down about. He's had a phenomenal career. And when you look at his losses in his career, uh, I, I personally remember watching the first fight with Junior Dos Santos live and thinking Stipe deserved the decision. I might go back and rewatch that now just to see. But, you know, he had the early surprise knockout loss to Stefan Shrove, which I don't think would go that way nine times out of ten. I think that was definitely a fluke, and it was just early in Stipe's career. And then other than that, he had the loss to Daniel Cormier, which uh, he redeemed twice in a row. Uh, so Stipe is easily the greatest heavyweight of all time. Uh, most heavyweight title defenses consecutively with three. And when you look at that run of uh, successful title defenses, he defeated Fabricio Verdum by first-round knockout to win the title. He defeated Alistair Overeem by first-round knockout to retain the title. He defeated Junior Dos Santos by first-round knockout to retain the title, and then defeated Francis Ngannou by a five-round lopsided decision to retain the title. It was an impressive run at heavyweight, lost to Cormier, and then beat him twice in a row. Um, so Stipe has had a hell of a career. If he does decide to come back, I would not be surprised if we see Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic versus John Jones. Make no mistake about it, that is still a super fight. Um, and, you know, it'd be a great way since John Jones, you know, is, is maybe kind of talking himself out of a title fight by saying book the fight with Derek first. It could be a way to kind of do a title eliminator, you know, give Stipe a chance to earn one last title shot and, you know, give John Jones a chance to earn a title shot at heavyweight. I don't think he necessarily needs to, but if you're going to go ahead and do Derek Lewis versus Francis Ngannou, then why not book that fight? Now, Derek Lewis does have a pretty good chance at defeating Francis Ngannou. Derek Lewis, in a, against a fighter who's going to primarily stand with him, always will have a chance. I'm taking Francis in this rematch if it happens, and personally I'm taking Francis in the John Jones fight just because of how patient and relaxed he looked in this one. John Jones has looked very hittable in recent fights, and you cannot be hittable 
against Francis Ngannou. So personally, I do think that Francis Ngannou's power will be too much for John Jones. I don't think that John Jones has no chance in that fight. John Jones will never have no chance against anyone. But I think John Jones has slowed down in recent years, and I think the power of Francis would be too much for him. Especially if he can't get him to the ground. And looking at how easily Francis sprawled a takedown on Saturday, I'm just not sure that a smaller guy like Jones, even putting on all this size, will be able to pull it off. So that was it for UFC 260. Very exciting night of fights. So a few other things to talk about. Uh, one thing I did want to say, Gordon Ryan is in uh, one championship. For any uh, hardcore grappling fans, this is a huge move. Uh, Gordon Ryan actually just had a dominant grappling match against Wagner Hosha this past weekend and uh, submitted him by Triangle Kimura. One of the best grapplers in all of the world, one of the best jiu-jitsu practitioners in all the world, signing with one championship for mixed martial arts and submission grappling. I'd imagine he'll be fighting at light heavyweight, so I'm curious to see what his striking will look like. But there is not going to be a single fighter in one championship that wants to go to the ground with Gordon Ryan. If Gordon Ryan can have a decent stand-up game and can get those fights to the ground, Gordon Ryan can become a champion in 1FC. Um, now, Justin Gaethje has been talking for over a week now about how he thought he was going to be fighting um, Michael Chandler. He, he thought he made sense as the fight to make for the championship. He doesn't know who he's made mad, but you know he, he thought he deserved it and he doesn't really know what's coming next for him. Well, Dana White gave us an answer on Saturday at the post-fight press conference. Now, my personal belief was that Justin Gaethje made sense to serve as the backup for Michael Chandler and Charles Oliveira, um, sort of like Chandler did for him and Nurmagomedov. I thought, you know, Gaethje coming off of a loss to Nurmagomedov, you maybe don't book him in the fight for the Undisputed Championship, but he is absolutely a perfect guy to be the backup for that title fight. Well, Dana White came out on Saturday and said that he believes that he's planning on having Justin Gaethje serve as the backup for McGregor Poirier in July. Um, I find that just as fascinating. So Poirier and Gaethje fought before. It was an absolutely incredible fight, and Poirier did end up putting Gaethje to sleep. Now, I thought when uh, Connor fought Cowboy, he should have been fighting Gaethje. So I, I love the idea of either one of those fights happening should one of them pull out for any reason. Now, will Justin Gaethje take it? I don't know. I personally do like the idea of him serving as the backup for the title fight. But him as the backup for McGregor and Poirier is just as exciting to me. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not that's what Gaethje wants. I don't see why he wouldn't personally, especially if something were to happen to Poirier. Fighting McGregor is a huge payday, and if he could put McGregor to sleep, he's getting a title shot. I believe that is a title eliminator fight through and through between uh, McGregor and Poirier, but Dana has come out and said that he thinks that Gaethje makes sense as the person to fight the winner of Oliveira and Chandler. So I, I think Gaethje is in a pretty good spot in the division still. I just think he's in a state of flux, and Gaethje is a guy who wants to fight, so he doesn't really like that. So, you know, having even something as simple as being a backup fighter hopefully will be enough for Gaethje. Hopefully they can get him to be on the line for that and can get him paid for that and have him ready. I, I love the idea of him as a backup fighter for either of those fights. Personally, I think because of the style of fight that McGregor and Poirier is, I don't know that a backup fighter is necessary, but given that it'll be a main event, it makes sense. I like him a little bit more as the backup fighter for the title fight, um, just because this division needs a champion, and 
Gaethje, even though he's coming off a loss to Khabib, is still a good guy to have in there to throw into the mix. So, Justin Gaethje, I'll be interested to see what they officially decide to do with him, but I believe he'll be a backup fighter for one of those fights, and it sounds like they're leaning towards McGregor Poirier. Stylistically, either one of those is exciting. If you don't get excited about him versus Poirier 2 or him versus McGregor, you need to check your pulse. All right, guys, last thing I want to talk about is this upcoming Saturday, Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori. I'm not going to break down the entire fight card right now, but I am going to talk about that main event. So Marvin Vittori is surging in the division, came up on short notice for Darren Till and defeated Jack Hermanson in an incredible way in a pretty lopsided fight, dropped him early and just ended up obliterating him in the stand-up game. Now, Naturally, Darren Till was the perfect next fight to make for him. Marvin Vittori has been adamant for a while that he is the guy that can beat Israel Adesanya. And honestly, when you look at it, they did have a split decision. Um, it was a pretty, I, sorry, I believe it was a split decision, uh, but it was a very close fight the first time around. Uh, it was 29-28, two rounds to one, and Vittori did end up taking the third round with his grappling. Um, and yes, it was a split decision on the Poirier Gaethje card. Um, so it was a pretty good fight, and it was uh, the first time that Israel Adesanya was really tested. So he's definitely got some leverage to get that fight booked. You know, he, he had a, a pretty impressive uh, 2020. Um, he had the uh, submission win over Carl Roberson, and then the one-sided division, decision over Jack Hermanson. Um, was coming off of two wins before that. He's won four straight. Um, other than that, he had, you know, a split decision loss to Israel Adesanya and a draw before that. Only has four career losses, um, and two of them, one of them was his professional debut, one of them was in his seventh career fight, the other one was in to Antonio Carlos Jr. in his second UFC fight, and then the other one's to Israel Adesanya. Um, this guy doesn't have any really bad career losses, to be truthful, and he's definitely on his way up in the division. With a win over Darren Till, he's got an argument for a title shot. But... Looking at the middleweight division, Darren Till is the guy that Israel Adesanya wants to fight, and he's wanted to fight Darren Till from the start. Now, Darren Till is, not to mention, we cannot forget this, <clears throat> still relatively new to the division, and is 1-1 one and, one and coming off a loss to Whitaker. However, he had lost two fights before that, so he's got a split decision win over Gastelum, which I thought should have been unanimous. Um... He had lost two straight fights at welterweight before moving up and then lost to Whitaker in what was a pretty good fight. Now, Whitaker has gone on and won another fight since then and will be fighting Kelvin Gastelum in just a few weeks. Was originally supposed to be Paulo Costa. So naturally, if Robert Whitaker wins, he makes more sense for a title fight than Darren Till coming off of a win over Marvin Vittori. However, it's important to note that what Israel Adesanya wants, Israel Adesanya gets. Israel Adesanya, when Paulo Costa went out the first time, wanted Yoel Romero. Even though Yoel Romero was coming off of a close loss to Paulo Costa, he still got it. When And he wanted to move up and test himself at 205. He got it. What Israel Adesanya wants, Israel Adesanya gets. So if Darren Till wins this fight, do not at all be surprised if Darren Till is fighting for the middleweight title next. This fight is a fight to definitely keep your eyes on because there is no denying that the winner could easily earn a title shot. We are in a very interesting spot in the middleweight division. We have two fights coming up where anybody who wins could be the next person to fight for the title. 
you know, if Robert Whitaker wins, I think there's, especially if it's an impressive performance, there's absolutely no denying him a rematch with Israel Adesanya. If Darren Till wins, Darren Till's going to call for a fight with Adesanya. And depending on how he looks, Adesanya will probably ask for it and, and get it. So this Saturday, and Marvin Vittori is going to call for that fight if he defeats Darren Till. And Marvin Vittori has a split decision loss to Israel Adesanya. And besides, Kelvin Gastelum gave him his toughest fight at middleweight. Marvin Vittori wants that fight. So this is a fight that I believe is going to be very exciting. I don't know who I truthfully believe is going to win, but I do believe that whoever wins this fight very likely could be fighting for the title next. So UFC on ABC this upcoming Saturday. Make sure you tune in. And it's going to potentially be a number one contender's fight. There's not much else to say about it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. That is all for me today. I will see you next Monday for the Monday Morning Mean Event to recap UFC Fight Night, Till versus Vittori, and to preview one on TNT, Demetrius Johnson versus Adriano Marais. So make sure you tune in. We're talking one championship and the winner of Darren Till, Marvin Vittori, next week. That is all for now. Have a great rest of your week.